We're going to get into uh, a, a book of the Bible today, uh, in the next few weeks, uh, called Ezra. And we'll find Ezra actually is Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's really two, uh, two books uh, in, our, in most of our text. It's really meant to be one. Uh, kind of an Old Testament overview. We'll kind of get into that, and it should be kind of fun. So um, I, uh, some of you know I've uh, you know, been through just a personal journey of loss last year and, and started um, grief counseling. Started counseling and kind of a new thing for me. I've never done that before. I've shared that and I've told countless people they should go see somebody, which is easier than going to see someone yourself, right? Much easier to dole out advice and actually show up and, and do something. And I mentioned Sarah was really helpful and kind of, you know, directing me in that, in that way. And so I went this week to, um, to the appointment, which was, um, I don't know, I was, I was surprisingly nervous about that. Uh, I shouldn't be, but I was kind of nervous. Like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What's it going to be like? What are they going to say? How do I prepare myself? Uh, even going up into the building, and it's kind of funny, you go into this little, little waiting area, and I saw somebody there I know, which was like, you know, it's just a little like, hey, we're, I'm here too, like, <laughs> like, what are you in here for? Like, we're both here for something, um, but which is, you know, which is fine, and, um, and it's just, you know, we're just, me working through some stuff, and, and, uh, and just trying to be, it's okay to not be okay, you just don't want to stay that way, and I get in uh, with the uh, counselor and, and she's great and like there's this you know sit, sitting area in this couch and I didn't really know what to do I'm like she's she's just sitting there I'm like should I lay down on the couch she's like no please don't I'm like well can I lay down on the couch because I kind of want to do it like the movies you know and and I'm tired so um, but it was but it was good and, and it, there's something about just sort of admitting struggle right admitting struggle and I really almost just tried to be overly open about this because I just believe in it for people and it's been so easy to tell other people we talk about authenticity and vulnerability but well that's for that's for everybody else not for me because I'm this I'm I'm a pastor at church I have this I'm at this school or I'm at this company and I can't do this and you know I'm this person in the community and and vulnerability we've just found is so attractive and it's such a strength and and Brené Brown has spoken on that um, so eloquently in past years and, and it's this idea of just admitting, yeah, there's a, there's a struggle. There's a little bit for me, I'm, I'm, there's sadness, and I'm, um, I'm, I'm super hopeful and grateful, but it's hard. Loss is, loss is hard. And we never really want to admit those things or those struggles or certainly not publicly. And we look into the, into the scripture, uh, one of the, the challenges for, for Israel, God's kind of chosen people through the, particularly the Old Testament, they're just not good at admitting like really where they're at. They're great about kind of rationalizing it and putting energy and efforts in other areas, but really admitting like, man, we're not in a good place with God. Like they just don't do that. They just kind of work through it, or they ignore it, or they drift off. And then you'll see periodically someone will come in and say, hey, you guys are way off base. Like you are not okay. I know you think you're okay. You're not okay. And that's what, we, that's what would be these prophets, this, this position or office of, of the prophets would come in and say, listen, you, you guys are blowing it here. And sometimes we need that because we're not good at telling ourselves that. We don't want to listen to those things ourselves. Like, man, I'm kind of struggling right now. I'm kind of struggling in my faith or my relationship or uh, just emotionally. I'm kind of in a struggle. Now, not everyone has to come up on the stage and tell everybody. We should tell somebody. And so Israel, we find, they, they kind of get in these ruts where things are going okay. And then there's other times it's not going well at all, but they just kind of, they just keep kind of working. They just kind of keep going. They keep doing what they've been doing all along. And then a voice will come and say, hey, listen, you guys are, you guys are kind of off. You're not doing well. So this book in, of, of Ezra 
through Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, Old Testament scripture, I, I imagine some of us have read that. Some of us probably have not read, uh, read it or, or hardly any of it. Um, but it's important for us. And Jesus, he talks about the scriptures often in his time when he's walking through the New Testament. He says, hey, you've got to look to the scriptures. Paul always, man, the scriptures are important and they're valuable and they're good for all these things. And when those guys are talking about the scriptures, they're not talking about our New Testament Bible that we've all come to love and be comfortable with. They're, they're talking about the first three quarters of the Bible, which is the Old Testament, which is, seems like, well, is that really relevant anymore? Does that matter? Well, Jesus said, yeah, you should still understand the Old Testament. It's still good. The Hebrew Bible is still important. The Torah, the prophets, the Psalms, other writings. He says this in John 5, 39. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. So he's speaking to the, the religious leaders of the day. This is Jesus. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So you've spent all this time studying this stuff, but you're kind of missing it because they're actually talking about me. So in the Old Testament, the, all the stories of the prophets and the historical narrative, is like it, it, does, it points to me, it leads up to me. It will help you understand me if you understand the Old Testament properly. And he says, why are you so surprised that I'm here? If you've read these, if you've understood it, you would get it. You would have picked up and read Genesis and, and th even through Malachi and Isaiah. Oh, my gosh, this is the guy. This is happening now. So it, it creates revelation about who Jesus is. And Ezra is not actually mentioned by Jesus in the New Testament, nor by any of the apostles. It's just one of those books that... Um, it's not the most obscure book, but it's not one that we go back to often. You know, it's not Genesis or, like I said, Isaiah or, or Jeremiah. And it's funny, like, well, why are books that seem less important still important? Right? We all have those kind of books in the Bible. There's some that we're comfortable with and we could flip through and, and we feel good about and we understand a little bit. And there's some like, ah, that's, I don't know what that one's about. It probably doesn't need to be there. So let's, I'll skip that one. Well, if it's there, is it important? Yeah. Well, why is it important? How does that one point to Jesus? How does that, what does that tell me about the love of our God? And then ultimately, ultimately what does that mean? Talk about his glory. Then how does that impact me? And not every book of the Bible, the Old Testament, or New Testament for that matter, uh, is overtly messianic prophecy. Not everything's like, oh, spells it out. There's someone who's going to come and save the world. doesn't all say that. But they all point forward in different ways. Even though not everything is very specific about there's going to be Jesus. It's like so many of our stories read. Who's read the uh, Chronicles of Narnia? Some familiarity there? We've, we've, we're familiar with that. This great series of books by C.S. Lewis. And, and who's like the main guy in those books, ultimately? Aslan, right? Aslan is really the guy in those books. Even though we're going to follow the stories of, of the kids and kings in different lands and different creatures, Aslan is ultimately the guy. But is, does Aslan appear on every page? Not at all. Not even really even every chapter. There's large sections of these books, this narrative, that go on without Aslan, but really it's about him and who he is. And so similar to the, to the text when you try to understand the Bible, there's some sections that, man, it doesn't seem like there's a lot happening, but it's still part of the story. If you ripped out all the pages and chapters that didn't have Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, you wouldn't be left with much. You wouldn't have a whole story. You wouldn't have a whole story. And so to learn through this, as we go through this in coming weeks, to look at this Old Testament book that's, you know, in the 500s before, before Christ. What does it mean? What does it mean about us as people? How does it reflect that? What does it tell us about God and, and who he is? And how do we respond to uh, law versus grace? I read this article this week on uh, 
kind of the science behind shopping carts in parking lots, right? You ever, you know, you pull into a parking lot and it's busy, like, ah, oh, sweet, there's a spot, and you, and, you, and you get around the corner, there's a shopping cart right in the spot. And it's like, all right, we have a couple of choices here. What do we do with the shopping cart? Do I stop and get out and move it? That seems highly unlikely. Can I just nudge it forward a little bit with my car? Anyone ever do that? Like, I can just kind of push it forward a little bit and get it out of the way. Or I just find another spot. And it can be chaos out there when it's busy and there's, and there's shopping carts everywhere. When it's not busy, like, yeah, whatever, it's just kind of sitting out there. But when it's busy and it's in your spot, it's chaos. It's dangerous to cars. It creates traffic. And they sort of found, like, why don't people put them back where they're supposed to be? Because did you guys know there's a place you're supposed to put them back? Like, there's a rack for them. There's this whole row that says, hey, put the shopping carts here. And reasons why we don't do it, one is receptacles too far from where you park the car. Like, oh, my gosh, the thing's in the front of the parking lot. My car's in the back. I'm just not going all the way back down there. I'm going to leave it here. Right. Maybe some of you, if you have kids with you, like, oh, it's just too much trouble. The kids are already in the car. I can't leave the, can't leave the child unattended. Sorry, shopping cart's going to stay here. Right. We don't have this as much, but they found weather is an issue. If, weather, if there's bad weather, like you barely got to your car and it's cold or rainy, like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not taking any more time out here in the elements. All right. Some people just have, a, they just have a harder time moving around, mobility issues, disability uh, issues that, that prevent them from kind of you know, doing that extra effort. Uh, one of the other reasons perception is that it's someone else's job to collect the carts. Or they're leaving the carts for someone else to easily pick up and use. There's sort of these I, uh, rationales like we go through, like, all oh, right, I got my cart, do I bring it back or not? And so they developed there's these five categories of cart users that sort of reflect these reasons for not putting it back uh, or putting it back. One is the returners. These people always return their carts to the receptacle regardless of how far away they've parked or what the weather is like. They feel a sense of obligation or feel badly for the people responsible for collecting the cards. So returners. So you don't have to do a show of hands, but I can imagine who you are. Returners. Also, I can imagine who this group is. The never returners. People who never return their cards. They just won't do it, even if it's closed. Why? Because they believe it's someone else's job to get the cards or the supermarket's responsibility. And they show little regard for where the cards are left. They think this is somebody else's job. Convenience returners, people who return their carts if they park close to the receptacle or if they see a cart attendant, right? So if, like, it's, if it's close enough or if I see someone watching me and I want to look good, I'm going to put it back. <laughs> Pressure returners, people return their carts only if the cart attendant is present or if the adjacent car's owner is present, which means they don't have an easy avenue for abandoning their carts, right? So if there's people around, oh, man, I wasn't going to do it. Should I, should I wait a little while until they leave? Well, I might as well just bring it back then. Or child-driven returners. These, people, these are people with children who view it as a game to return the carts, often riding them back to the receptacle or pushing them into the stack lines. It's kind of funny, all these little things that we all go through. And that's about motivation, why we do things or don't do things. Like, why would I put it back? Is it somebody's there? Or is it, I think it's someone else's job? Right? And so in the Old Testament, there's all these laws that the nation of Israel is living under, all these laws that's supposed to govern them and supposed to keep things in line. But really, is, is, is that the motivation for obedience or for doing good? Is it, is it just peer pressure, like everyone else is doing it? And listen, this could be any of our faith right now. We're, whoever you are, wherever you're at, we, we sometimes fall into the same runs. Is it just peer pressure? Am I practicing this faith because of peer pressure, because the people around me are, and I probably should? Is it just rule following? You're just a rule follower. Well, my parents did it, my parents before them did it, the grandparents, the great-grandparents, it's always been in our family, we've just always gone to church, I'm a rule follower, I'm just going to do it, I'm not going to break the norm. 
Right? For some, it's really this response to grace. Like, oh my gosh, I just feel like God is present in my life, and that's why I'm engaging. And ultimately, that's a healthy place to be. But it's so easy to drift to those other places and just kind of go, go along. We're uh, into, this, into this story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah is, is two books in our, most of our Bibles, like I said, Ezra and Nehemiah. But, but traditionally, this is one book. According to Jewish tradition, Hebrew, church fathers, it's one book. It's one writing. So to read Ezra and get to the end of it and say, oh, I'm done, you're really just in the, in the middle. It's, it's, one, it's one piece. The first thing to kind of remember about this as we go through it, we'll kind of overlap. This is one literary work. This was one idea. Real likely one author, Ezra, who wrote both of these. It wasn't until the 1100s that this book was split. And, and if you know the Bible at all, it can be a little complicated, but it wasn't written with chapters and verses and books and titles. We added that stuff to make it helpful to you. So someone had an idea like, ah, this would be easier if this was two books. Really, it was one book, one, one original idea. And it's a little bit of a harder book. It's sort of in the, in the, in the, in the biblical drama, this storyline. Uh, this is a little bit of the deep end of the pool, right? This is, this is um, there's a lot happening. There's a lot that has happened. There's a lot of context of where we are, who are we talking about, what's this guy, Jeremiah, who's Cyrus. There's a lot happening in this, in this text. And we're going to try to uncover some of that and try to make some of it a little more clear. But, but it's kind of like jumping into, if you ever jumped into a trilogy late in the movie, like you didn't watch the first two, or like a, a, a sequel comes out, like, well, do you have to see the first one, really? Or, you know, if you just saw the last Star Wars, it could still be fun, uh, but, you, but you're missing a lot, right? So when we read the, when we read the text, where we, we see things in it that we don't understand, like, you can move on. You might be able to get something out of it. Yeah, it's, it's still good. It's still helpful to be in there. But there's so much more to it. And yeah, you can enjoy it, and it can change your life, but... It's nice to sort of understand where we're going. So we'll kind of back up and take some time there. This book uh, comes into play after Israel was taken captive by the Babylonians. So this is, uh, would have been the story of Daniel. If you know the story of Daniel, this, this empire rises up, Babylonian empire. They crush Israel, take a bunch of people, destroy the temple. They take everybody away. And they take them away to be slaves, and they take them away to work, uh, just to kind of be part of their, of their life. So this is, this is after that. So that happened. They're in captivity. Uh, they're there like, you know, 50 years. Babylon starts to come undone. This new empire comes up, Persia. So Persia is now, now going to be ruling it. They basically inherit all the captives. So like, oh, they were here, and now we get you. So first Babylon took us, and they owned us. Now this other guy beat them, so now they get them too. So this is this whole people group, which is stuff so far removed from us in our nation, like what this could even feel like to have your, your, your nation or empire collapse or be taken captive. But this is what's happening in history. Babylon had, has Israel. Now Babylon's fallen, and, and, and Persia's taken over. And they're living there. And it's this time of about 70 years that these people are living in, in captivity. Captivity. This is around, like I said, late, late 5, 586 to 516. And the book starts to talk about this return. So we've been in this place for 70 years. We haven't had our own land. We haven't had our own people. We've been battling customs. We really haven't had space in our own religion. And now it's going to talk about we're going to be able to get our land back. We're going to be able to go back to where we were, back to where we came from. And it begins to activate in the, in the story in the biblical drama, this story of hope. Now, Jeremiah and the prophets would have, have talked about, if they, they would have been familiar with this, like, hey, you're going to go into captivity. This is going to happen, but God has not forgotten you. He's going to get you out, and it's going to happen. And this starts to activate God's story, that, that, that prophetic idea, uh, prophetic package of hope. 
And when there's hope and when someone can, can look at something and say, hey, God said he was going to do that, and like, oh, he's actually doing it, your, your heart kind of comes back to life sometimes. Because some of us need that, and that 70 years can feel like a long time, or whatever that period of light, that exile is that you feel like maybe you're in now or I've been in. You just feel like, I'm out of it. Man, things were so good, and I was comfortable, and now I'm just out of it. I don't have the same people. I don't have the same place. I feel alone. I feel lost. I'm not sure if there's, there's ever going to be anything good. It's like, okay, there, there is hope. For the, for the big picture of God's people, there is, there is hope. He will do what he says he's going to do. Chris Reeve says, once you choose hope, anything is possible. Which I love this idea of choosing hope. We've talked about this. I'm just going to believe in it. If there's, a, if there's a chance that there's something good, if there's some kind of good news, I want to believe in that. I hope it's true. We talked about that a few weeks ago. I hope it's true. If I say to you, man, God has a plan for your life. He loves you. He has good things for you. I take a deep breath and say, I hope that's true. And, and believe in that. And hope that's true. Because it's so easy. Like, well, maybe for someone else. Maybe that makes sense for someone else. For me, mm, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know how bad I've messed up. You don't know how much time has gone by that I've felt depressed. So you need to believe in that, take that step into hope. And so there's this return happening for people who are like, I don't know how this is ever going to work out because we're stuck in this one empire. Now this other one came on. How am I ever going to get out of this? And we begin to see there's this release of the people. And similar to the story of Exodus, right, it was really a miracle that they got out of there. If you were living as a slave in that time for hundreds of years in Egypt, generation upon generation, like, oh, man, I don't see any way out of this. We are never going to get out of this. We're stuck. And whenever it feels stuck, like, I'm never getting out of this. This is not going to change. Because the optics tell you, like, this isn't going to change. There's nothing here. We don't have any money. We don't have a leader. Uh, we, we, we're, we're stuck under this ruler. Could look at a situation with the optics and say, oh, we're stuck here. But the story of the Bible is like, man, you are never stuck if, if, if there is a God and he is who he says he is. Opens up like this, this, uh, this story. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So this is, again, new king. has taken over the Babylonian Empire. Uh, chapter 1 is going to be about this, this surprising deliverance. In the first year, Cyrus, king of Persia. This is Ezra 1. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. So king of Persia, again, this is not a pro-Israel person. Uh, not someone who should care about his captives or where they've been or what they want to do. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm, and he put it in writing. He said, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. And this is like law. This is what he's saying. The Lord, the God of heaven, again, this is not a person uh, of God or necessarily of faith in the God of Israel. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him, at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their, may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods, livestock, and with free will, free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So again, they're away from Jerusalem, uh, captive in another city, just having to make the best 
the most of life there. This king who's not uh, Jewish, is not from Israel, has this, this move in his spirit from God that says, you know what? You've got to build me a temple, man. And you should send all my people back to it. And this is a, a huge miracle. This is just showing God's providence, how he can work through anything. Because if you're looking at the situation like, well, that's not going to happen. You wouldn't even think about that. You wouldn't even be like, wow, I wonder if the king will set us free someday, send us back to our temple, then pay for it. You wouldn't even know how to pray that. We can't even dream that big sometimes. But that's what God's doing. And this move of, the, of, of God's moving on the heart is, 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 is more literally, he stirred the spirit. He stirred the spirit. Ruah, in Genesis 1, talks about Ruah. And this is the spirit hovering over the waters, God's spirit. It's Ruah. His Ruach is, is the breath of life. He talks about when he gives breath to, to Adam, it's Ruach. And he says he moved in them. He moved in, in Cyrus, and he also moved in his own people. The family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests, who you would think would be excited about this, he moved in them as well. Because apathy can come in like, ah, oh, I don't know if I trust that. I'm good here. He moved in their hearts to prepare and go. And God is present for every breath of life because he is the breath of life. And it can feel like he's not when you're in these places of captivity or exile or loss or abandonment or you're fragmented or your family's come undone. Your traditions have fallen apart. All this stuff is just lost that maybe you once had. God is still present. He's present because he is, he is life itself. And he stirs these hearts. And you and I sometimes, we need that on both sides of the equation where we can think, man, is it hopeless? It seems hopeless, but if there is a God, maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. And if you're here today and you think, well, I think there might be a God, whatever your situation is, has a chance. There is hope. Whatever, whatever however deep that drama is, Health, relationship, just despair, uh, family lost, estranged family members, some kind of brokenness somewhere. If there is a God, which I contend there is, and if the text is reliable, which I believe it is too, and he is who he says he is, yeah, there's hope in any situation. Even to do something crazy, like use somebody like King Cyrus, who really before had no interest in their life, to turn things around. There could be someone in your life you, you haven't even thought about. They are so far off from even, even your prayer life that they can, God can use that, stir in their hearts to change something in your life. And that should activate hope. And if you choose hope, anything is possible. If you choose hope, anything is possible. And then for the people, he had to stir their hearts too. He's like, I'm gonna do this huge work in your life. I'm gonna get this king on board with what I'm doing. But because you guys are kind of like, mm, I have to stir your hearts too. And so we need to be praying for our own hearts. God, stir my heart. Breathe in me, God. I don't want to miss it. If you're doing something, if you're doing something cool in this city, in my life, in my family, with my neighbor, man, stir my life, Lord. I don't want to miss it. Because God's active. I believe he is. He's not the one who's sort of sitting still and doing nothing. He's on the move, right? Aslan is on the move. God's on the move. So they pray for our own hearts. God, stir me up. Stir up that ruah, that spirit in me, so I may be able to engage your activity. And so they begin to go back, and really chapter 2 is just a list of all the people went back. 
This is one of those pages in the Bible that it's just names and a couple of numbers. You're not sure if you should read it or just skim over it. It's all these names and lists. And at the end of it, it says this. The priests, the Levites, this is chapter 2, verse 70 of, of Ezra. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, along with some of the other people and the rest of the Israelites. They all settled. So they went back, and they had this tons of work to do, but they settled themselves down into their towns and their family units first. And I, I kind of love that little line. Like, like, it sort of starts at home. Yes, we have to rebuild an altar. We have a city that's been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. There's no walls. There's a ton to do. We've got to settle our home first. And for some of us, we need to remember that. Yeah, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of activity in the world. There's some fun stuff to do, and there's work to do, and there's plans to be made. But man, you've got to settle your home. Just settle your home. These guys went back. They said, hey, we all, we all went back. All the people, the Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, people who are going to build it, and they settled in their towns. They settled in their homes, and they, and they, and they rested there, and they regrouped that. And if your home is chaos, and the rest of your life is going to follow. I'm going to have uh, Noah come back up. I, I thought maybe we'd do like four or five chapters a day. We did two, but that's okay. It's going to be good. There's a lot of drama in this book. There's ups and downs, and there's going to be a series of, 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 of despair, and there's going to be hope, and then it's going to kind of come undone again, and, and it follows this track. And it really mirrors the track of so many of our lives and so much of the story. Even when something good happens, it's like, oh, shoot, now something, something else is happening. I mean, that's just sometimes life. And what we're going to get to is where are they anchoring their hope? Where is the hope? And that's going to be for you and I. If our hope is in our tradition, in where we live, in uh, the people that are around us, eh, it's going to be a little shaky. If that hope is in something greater, someone who could move uh, beyond the stars, then that's a good foundation. So God, thanks for who you are. Thanks for this story. Uh, Lord, thanks for the honesty of the text, Lord, the honesty of the Bible, that there is broken people in it, Lord. I thank you that the Bible is just so much more honest than we are often, Lord. Pray as we dive into this text that you would, uh, you would stir our hearts, Lord, Ruah. Lord, stir the spirit in me to your activity. Lord, those who are in despair, they just feel like, man, I have been in captivity. I've been in exile. I've been lost. I've been out there. I've been alone for a long time. Lord, I pray you would activate hope in those lives. Activate hope in those lives, Lord, that just feel, feel lost and broken. Lord, help us to believe in hope, to choose hope. Thank you for loving us. In your name, amen.